Welcome to episode 15 of the Fire Safety Matters podcast, where we bring you the latest news, views and opinion from across the UK's dedicated fire industry. My name's Brian Sims and I'm the editor of Fire Safety Matters magazine. We're delighted that this podcast is sponsored by the Fire Safety Event, which runs at the NEC in Birmingham on the 27th, 28th and 29th of April 2021. To register for the show, visit www.firesafetyevent.com. Once again, I'm joined on the Fire Safety Matters podcast by my colleague Mark Sennett, the CEO at Western Business Media. Hi, Mark. How are things with you at the moment? Yeah, all's good with me. Thanks, Brian. And uh, I believe it's your birthday. So happy birthday to you. It is indeed. Thank you very much, Mark. Another year older. I'm sure you're absolutely silently seething that I announced that on air, but, you know, unlucky. <laughs> but happy birthday. And uh, as a birthday treat to you, I will start off the podcast in the usual way. So for those of you that aren't familiar, we start off the podcast by covering the news. And if you want to see the latest news in the fire safety sector, all you need to do is go to our website, fsmatters.com. You can go there to sign up to receive our weekly newsletter for free. You can also sign up to any of our upcoming webinars or past webinars that we've got and claim CPD through that, actually. And and if you sign up to receive a copy of FSM magazine, either in print or a digital copy of it, you could also get CPD points, informal CPD points, just for reading the magazine, thanks to the Institute of Fire Safety Managers. So all of that and more is available at fsmatters.com. So as I said, to start off, we go straight into the biggest news stories from the last fortnight. So the first thing I want to cover, Brian, is that the Fire Industry Association has announced the provision of a portal for EWS One Forms. So following consultations with the Ministry of Housing, Communities and Local Government, which is MHCLG, and in collaboration with the Royal Institution of Charter Surveyors, which is RICS, and other key stakeholders, which includes lenders and insurers, the Fire Industry Association is developing a dedicated portal which will provide a central and readily accessible location for EWS1 forms, thereby allowing fire engineers to complete the documents online. Prior to this point, valuation and home survey processes were somewhat insufficient for establishing whether or not external cladding on high-rise buildings over 18 metres tall contained combustible material that could potentially facilitate the spread of fire. Following on from the Grenfell Tower tragedy, which happened in 2017, and a subsequent MHCLG guidance, RICS, working alongside the UK Finance and Building Society Association, has developed the EWS1 forms, which we talked about quite a bit on this podcast, and you can listen back to some comments from Warren Spencer on that. And these were developed as a means of enabling competent fire experts to assess whether tall buildings are fire safe, and if not, to, unfer- to, I should say, to identify the remedial work needs to be carried out. The provision of EWS1 forms has proven successful in creating a clear and consistent means by which the market understands the documentation required to support the buying, selling or remortgaging of properties located within high-rise structures. However, while the EWS1 forms have been downloaded from the RICS website more than 8,000 times, there remain some key issues to be resolved in order to create a fully reliable and accessible process for the upload and retrieval of these documents. That's why the FIA stepped up in the development of its new portal. It means an increasingly urgent need for property sellers and buyers, insurers and mortgage lenders to easily access for free and in one specific location the information they need in order for transactions involving properties in high-rise buildings to proceed as normal post-Grenfell Tower, as well as identifying any remedial actions that must be taken on these buildings in respect of external cladding. So quite a big step for the FIA, and obviously they dropped his line saying 
how keen they were for us to share this with all of you. I think you've got a bit more information on this, Brian. Yes, Mark. Of particular importance here is a need to prevent fraudulent activity relating to EWS1 forms, which regrettably has been identified in the market and which can place lives at risk. A rigorous approach has been applied to the FIA's portal to include manual checks at various stages of the process, Mark. Each fire engineer wishing to submit forms must present evidence that they're fully qualified and competent to do so. Indeed, this is interrogated prior to enabling their forms to be submitted to the portal itself. In addition, Mark, all existing forms and online submissions are subject to further checks to determine their validity before they appear as publicly available documents. In this way, the FI expects to eliminate the problem of fraudulent EWS1 forms appearing in the marketplace. The FI is funding the building of this portal itself and has employed software specialists to create an effective, efficient and user-friendly website that has been approved itself by the RICS forum. Registration and the uploading of EWS1 forms will cost a small fee to cover the validating work involved but access to the portal by the public will be free. We are told that the website is currently in an advanced stage of development and expected to be fully functional as a public service by the middle of next month. For further information on the portal, the readers of Fire Safety Matters can send an email to info at fia.uk.com. Moving on to our next story now, Mark. BAFE has issued a fulsome response to the government's consultation, which ran from the 20th of July to the 12th of October, and seeking views on proposals to embolden the Fire Safety Order 2005 implement Grenfell Tower inquiry recommendations and also strengthen the regulatory framework for how building control bodies consult with fire and rescue authorities. In the organisation's response, CEO Stephen Adams has disagreed with the assertion that Article 50 is a sufficient basis for providing guidance to responsible persons to support their compliance with their duties under the fire safety order. BAFE strongly agrees with the view that a strengthened legal basis for guidance under the fire safety order, such as a code of practice, is desperately needed. The organisation is also the very firm opinion that an approved code of practice should be applicable for multiple areas and individuals including responsible persons, while also encompassing areas such as enforcement and sanctions, fire risk assessments, more of which are non-mark, the provision of information and the competence of providers. According to Adams, these areas should be covered by a code of practice to ensure that all providers of fire protection services and related built environment services are competent to provide them, both as organisations and as individuals. This competence should be third-party certificated by UCAS in the case of organisations and off-call or equivalents in the case of individuals. Further, Stephen Adams agrees that responsible persons should be required to record who they are and outline the extent of their responsibility under the fire safety order, while their contact information will facilitate the identification of responsible persons themselves. Stephen Adams continued, and I quote, Responsible persons need a clearer detail of their responsibilities and guidance as to how those responsibilities can best be discharged. Guidance on what's required and what can constitute a defence in law if a building failure occurs is also needed. As an organisation, Mark, BAFE has long been an advocate of the overriding need for strong regulation of fire risk assessment providers. On that point, Stephen Adams stated, the fire safety order should include a competency requirement for fire risk assessors and other fire professionals engaged by responsible persons. He also states that, the specific representative from the fire risk assessment provider should be clearly documented within the completed fire risk assessment itself. BAFE has noted that fire risk assessment should require the following. Evidence of competency of the fire risk assessor, including experience and qualifications. Third party certification of the organisation, including sole providers, to demonstrate that they have adequate management systems in place, quality assurance, insurance and compliance processes, and any consultation or guidance received from external bodies and manufacturers to be part of the assessment process itself. Following on from this, Mark, BAFE also strongly agrees that a duty should be placed on all responsible persons to record their completed fire risk assessments. 
While onerous, this is a vital life safety action for all commercial and non-domestic buildings to which the Fire and Rescue Services, as a prosecuting body for the Fire Safety Order, should always have access. Bayford advises here that fire risk assessments are commonly misunderstood as being an action that establishes a safe building. Ultimately, a fire risk assessment is a report of the adequacy of a building's fire safety at the exact time when it was carried out. This simple statement is not meant to undermine the significant importance of any such assessment, but also means that an assessment itself doesn't immediately make a building safe from fire risk. There may be actions required by the building owner or manager to mitigate any identified risk. On that basis, Stephen Adams also said, and I quote, all responsible persons should be required to record their fire safety arrangements in order to acknowledge that suitable recommendations from the assessment have been followed so as to mitigate any risk highlighted. Further on in base response to the consultation, Stephen Adams adds, there are insufficient powers for the fire risk assessors to ensure that responsible persons and all building occupiers comply with requirements. Fire risk assessors don't consistently have the skills and knowledge to carry out the range of inspections required. This is an area where Bay feels strongly that government intervention is required, stipulating competency requirements instead of putting a complete onus on the responsible person to nominate competent persons. This opens up the process back into cost cutting. Inevitable outcome of money saving exercises can cause unnecessary risk to life and property protection. Stephen Adams disagrees that level three fines, i.e. £1,000, or level four fines, i.e. £2,500, would provide a suitable deterrent. What has been agreed is a level five unlimited fine. On this note, Adams observed, if there are suitable guidelines and instructions about what needs to be carried out, which currently do not exist, then fines must be commensurate with the failure to act accordingly. This statement coincides fully with Bayf's own request for greater supporting guidance on the role of the responsible person, which can be used to clarify if legislation has been adhered to or otherwise. This would be something akin to health and safety executive guidance and health and safety focused legislation, Mark. Yeah, and, you know, that's quite a detailed take on this one, Brian. It's it's a story that keeps on evolving and we cover it quite a bit. You know, I, I'd agree with Stephen's position of the level five um, unlimited fines would make sense to me. I've long said on this podcast, if you're going to do enforcement on companies, make sure that it's not just a petty fine that is irrelevant to them. Make it make sure that it actually does act as a deterrent. So I'd like to add a little bit more to something that Stephen said at the back end of his response. And he concluded that the impact of implementing third-party certificated competence will be hugely beneficial to all fire protection and related construction work. When implemented, the proposals will provide a framework that protects lives and property. BAFE, and indeed UCAS accredited competency sector in its entirety, demands greater government-issued guidance on who's considered competent to provide essential life safety work, as, as we've explained. This must be at the same level as the health and safety executive guidance, which can then be used to lawfully judge who is at fault for any breaches under the fire safety order and also included in any statutory defence. With many buildings having not actually having a dedicated fire safety officer, these responsibilities are just part of another member of staff or owner of the building's duties. Clear guidance must be issued for quick reference to ensure that individuals remain compliant with the law. So I completely stand by all of that. It's it's a key area, Brian. And I think, you know, this is now a nice time to transition into who our first guest is on this episode of the podcast.
Actually, Mark, it's not one but two guests who join us for the initial interview on this edition of the Fire Safety Matters podcast. Those guests are Richard Jenkins and John Davidson from the National Security Inspectorate. Richard is the CEO at the Inspectorate, which is, of course, the certification body for the security and fire protection sectors here in the UK. Having graduated with a degree in economics from Durham University back in 1978, Richard worked across several sales and marketing roles before becoming process improvement consultant for MITCOR in May 2006. He subsequently worked at the IKEA Group Group and Steelcase before becoming CEO at the NSI in March 2014. John Davidson is Head of Field Operations for Systems at the Inspectorate. After working for 23 years in the fire and security industry, John joined the NSI back in 2005 as a Regional Inspector for the Midlands region. He progressed to become Operations Manager before taking on the Field Operations role. John has the primary responsibility for the fire schemes operated within the NSI and also represents the organisation on various British standards institutions as well as BAFE technical committees. Earlier this week, I chatted with Richard and John about various issues, among them third-party certification and the Draft Building Safety Bill. First, though, we focused on the NSI's key role within the fire safety sector itself. For those who may not be familiar with the work of the National Security Inspectorate, what is the NSI's key role within the fire safety sector? Well, good morning, Brian. Well, as you know, we're an independent, not-for-profit, third-party certification body, and we've been operating in the security arena for about 50 years, but just 15 years in fire safety. And our mission is to deliver higher standards of um, competence, really, for buyers of commercial and domestic fire and security systems in the wider public interest. I'd say the competency that we have in active fire safety detection and suppression systems and in live fire risk assessment is really what we bring to play in the market. We're accredited ourselves by UCAS, the UK Accreditation Service. So that means that we get inspected every year and we have an ongoing um, programme of uh, of audits from UCAS to ensure that we're maintaining our correct levels of competence and delivering, as they say, what it says on the tin. We oversee around about 550 fire safety providers across the UK with our team of uh, competent full-time auditors. Each company that we have signs up to an audit program for ongoing um, audits, not just a one-off at the start of the process. Um, and that ensures that on a continuing basis, they are meeting best practice as we see it and have the capability to do that. And that's really a hallmark for buyers looking for service providers in the sector. And John, the NSI is licensed by BAFE. Can you explain what this means for fire safety providers, please? Yes, Brian. Um... First of all, I'd just like to clarify the, the relationship between BAFE and the certification bodies as, as many people get confused over this. So BAFE is the independent registration body for third-party certificated fire protection companies in the UK. And they maintain a national independent register of quality fire safety safety service providers. But although BAFE own the various schemes, such as SP203, uh, Part 1 for fire detection and alarm system providers and SP205 for providers of life safety fire risk assessments, BAFE are not a certification body and therefore they cannot operate the schemes. And this is where NSI come in. So as Richard just said, NSI is a UCAS accredited third party certification body. And we operate the schemes under licence from BAFE. And 
before a company is eligible for inclusion on the BAFE register, they must have been certificated by an accredited body such as NSI, and they must continue uh, to be certificated by having annual surveillance audits uh, by their certification body. So NSI operates a two-tier approach to our approval system, um, gold and silver. And by doing this, it allows companies to grow and develop their businesses and companies can gain approval at uh, either level. A company holding gold, gold approval, um, it signifies that in addition to compliance with industry-specific standards, uh, a company operating at gold also has to meet the requirements of BSE and ISO 9001 uh, and operate a quality management system. Gold and silver-proof companies work to the same industry-specific industry standards, such as BS5839 Part 1 for fire detection systems or PD6662 for intruder and hold-up alarm systems. And they're subject to independent regular audits by NSI to monitor compliance with those standards. And the relevant standards, any standards that a company have been certificated to, are displayed on the approved company's certificate of approval. And in the case of an NSI Gold company, a company's quality management system is tailored to suit the way a company operates to the specific needs of the fire safety and all the security sector. And following on from that, John, the NSI provides third-party certification for a diverse range of fire safety services, of course. What's the typical process fire safety providers will undergo to attain their certification with you? Okay, so the typical process is that once a company has submitted their application, it is processed by our head office team and required due diligence checks are carried out. And as part of the due diligence, aside from the checks that we do on the financial stability of the company and the verification of company directors, the checks also include an assessment of the competency of key individuals involved in the provision of the service for which certification is sought. So we look at the competency for such people as system designers in, in the case of fire detection fire alarm systems or the validators in the case of the uh, BAEF SP205 Life Safety Fire Risk Assessment Scheme. And once all the checks have been completed, then an auditor who's expert in that particular field, that area of certification, uh, they will be assigned to the company to carry out the initial certification audit. Now, the initial certification audit usually takes two to three days, but this depends on the size of the company and the range of the certification they have applied for. The audit itself um, involves auditing the company's office processes and the procedures, which includes looking at client files, checking competency and CPD records for those personnel who are involved in providing the system or service and looking at the processes for providing the product or service that the company are seeking uh, certification for. But also, and, and more importantly, audits are carried out on-site at premises where systems have been recently installed or where risk assessments are being carried out. And this allows the NSI auditor to assess the competency of the individuals involved in providing that system or service and to assess the quality of the um, of the system or service being provided. But going on from that, 
the initial certification audit really is only the start of the process. Once the company has achieved its initial certification, then they have to have ongoing annual audits to ensure continued compliance with relevant standards, codes of practice, and applicable legislation. But very importantly, there's a strong focus on the continual improvement process within the company. And we are looking to see if a company is reviewing its processes and procedures in order to enhance its performance and increase the quality of the product or the service provided to the customer. And in addition to this, in addition to the annual surveillance audits, every three years, a company has to undergo a recertification audit. And this is to enable the renewal of their certificate of approval. Richard, the NSI has recently been calling for the wider adoption of third party certification within the fire safety sector. What are the changes you would like to see? Well, Brian, you're right, you're right. Third party certification in the fire safety space is currently largely voluntary. We know that progressive businesses sign up to it as a means of demonstrating their competence to their customers, and it is supported in some degree by insurers, but not in a universal way. We think that the private sector can truly be adaptive and responsive in delivering public safety, making people safer in their homes, workplaces, and where they spend their leisure time. We see this in the world of security, where public private partnerships developed over a number of years deliver positive outcomes for all concerned and support the police, both in the man guarding arena and intruder alarm monitoring. Joined up public private partnership thinking then can be strengthened when standards are recognised by all parties and a delivery mechanism is applied. Third party certification is a proven delivery mechanism which has been shown to be effective. It harnesses best practice It harnesses the ingenuity of the free market and it delivers effective safety. And of course, as standards evolve, it monitors service providers and their upgrading to new versions or upgraded standards. So whether it's to be reflected in building regs or in fire and rescue service policies or other means, third party certification can improve safety and increase effectiveness of the blue light services. John, the NSI has cautiously welcomed the publication of the draft building safety bill. What's the inspectorate's view on this document? Uh, yes, Brian, as you said, we, we have cautiously, cautiously welcomed the, the, the draft building safety bill. The building safety bill is the biggest change in building legislation for almost 40 years. And anything that can be done to introduce a less confusing legal system, increased competency levels uh, of all those whose work might might affect safety in buildings and make people responsible and more importantly accountable for fire safety in buildings has got to be welcomed it's it's a common occurrence that when i go out and i witness fire risk assessors undertaking fire risk assessments in all sorts of buildings but especially in in buildings of multiple occupation it's very very unclear most of the time on who actually has the ultimate responsibility for fire safety in that building so the intent within the building safety bill to make people more accountable and more responsible for fire safety in buildings has, has got to be good it's got to be welcomed nsi's firm view is that third party certification 
should be adopted more widely to help govern the sector. Independent audit of competence and management control across a range of fire safety measures can can demonstrably improve outcomes and help raise standards that the public can, can rely on. And third party certification in the fire safety sector is not new. It's, it's been around for many, many years. NSI has been involved in the third party certification of fire alarm system providers since the early 2000s. So although it's not new, it is still only voluntary. But organisations that hold third party certification can demonstrate their predisposition to continuous improvement, looking to improve their processes, procedures and the quality of the product or service that they provide. And there's benefits in terms of organisational efficiency and, as I said, the quality of, of fire safety systems and services provided. And last but not least, John, from the NSI's perspective, what are the latest developments regarding third-party certification in the fire safety arena? As your listeners will be aware, there are many, many changes taking place as a result of the Grenfell tragedy and the resulting inquiry and reports. As we've already mentioned, we have new legislation coming through, such as the Building Safety Bill. There's the Fire Safety Bill and also the consultation has just closed in relation to changes to the Fire Safety Order. As most of your listeners will also know, the Setting the Bar report was recently published by the Competence Steering Group and it contains four key recommendations in relation to third-party certification. The first of these is for individuals whose work materially affects safety or who work unsupervised and then compliance needs to be demonstrated by independent third-party assessment. And all of the working on high, higher risk buildings should be supervised by individuals who have been third party assessed as competent to carry out the work and to act as supervisors. So that's the first point. The second point that the report calls for is the application of stringent assessment for organisations using methods such as accredited third party certification. The next point is that there should be accredited third-party certification of fire risk assessors and organisations. And this should also be introduced with registers of persons accredited by UCAS. And the final sort of major point raised in relation to third-party certification is there should be a statutory duty to use accredited fire risk assessors to conduct fire risk assessments for what they call in-scope buildings. So effectively, at the moment, we are looking at at uh, multi-occupied residential buildings, blocks of flats basically exceeding uh, where there's a living level of more than 18 metres high um, or six storeys, so in-scope buildings. As NSI, we already offer third-party certification for providers of life safety fire risk assessments, fire detection alarm systems, emergency lighting, portable fire extinguishers and, and fixed gases fire suppression systems. In addition to this, in 2019, we also introduced certification to companies to the BAFE SP206 scheme, and that's for the kitchen fire suppression systems. And just recently, we were the first certification body to achieve UCAS accreditation to operate the latest BAFE scheme, which has just been launched, and that's the SP207 scheme for providers of evacuation alert systems to British standard BS 8629. But in addition to this, there are 
other developments on the horizon. So firstly, there's the publication of the revised Pass 79. And this has now been split into two parts, with part two focusing on housing premises and, and parts of housing premises for which fire risk assessments are required by legislation. So we're talking premises such as blocks of flats, um, sheltered housing, extra care housing and certain houses in multiple occupation. There's a lot of work being carried out on, on uh, past 79 and hopefully this is due for publication in December. In addition to this um, and in support of the fire safety bill which now brings external walls, balconies and cladding uh, into scope of the fire safety order. There's a new pass being developed and this is pass 9980, which is entitled the Code of Practice for Fire Risk Appraisal and Assessment of External Wall Construction of existing blocks of flats. Uh, that, that title just trips off the tongue. The aim of the new pass is to provide guidance and a methodology for fire engineers and, and those with the required levels of competency to determine whether existing external wall construction is compliant with relevant national fire safety legislation. And hopefully this will be published in mid 2021. Returning to the news now, and during 2020, the passive fire protection solutions market is expected to suffer a major downturn due to COVID-19 and the accompanying adverse effects upon construction activity, the economic outlook and business confidence. For these reasons, the market is forecast to dip by 9% over the course of the year. That's a prediction currently being made by AMA Research. Prior to this year, the market experienced a period of consistent growth increasing in value terms by 11% between 2015 and 2019. Much of this can be attributed to a positive performance in various sectors of the non-residential construction industry, such as commercial offices, infrastructure, and also leisure and entertainment. The market is expected to remain heavily dependent upon trends in construction output, especially so for non-residential applications. The present government's intention to invest in infrastructure projects via its Getting Building Fund should provide some market impetus in the short term. In the residential sector, new regulations have been introduced aimed at rectifying problems identified in the Hackett Report, which of course followed the Grenfell Tower disaster. The Fire Safety Bill covers fire safety in residential dwellings and has created new areas of responsibility and accountability. More stringent regulations are also expected to affect the wider industry as the pressure continues to grow upon manufacturers and specifiers alike to provide safer and more fire-resistant environments. Michelle Turner has made comment on this issue, Mark. Michelle is the market research analyst at AMA Research, and she's commented, positive performance in key end-user sectors pre-2020 helped to bring a spurt of growth to the passive fire protection market. These same end-user sectors are now experiencing detrimental effects as a result of COVID-19, and investment has duly tightened. Michelle went on to state, supported by the very need of the products found within this market, and also driven by further calls for tighter legislation and stricter accountabilities as a direct result of Dame Judith Hackett's independent review of building regulations and fire safety, the passive fire protection market looks set to remain relatively strong as fire safety is paramount, steadying the ship in what are adverse conditions. There's absolutely no doubt about that last statement, Mark. 
Yeah, and, you know, I, I just want to add that overall, the longer-term scenario for passive fire protection market remains mixed. According to AMA research, much of this will depend on how well the UK emerges from the various political and economic challenges posed by COVID-19, as well as what form of Brexit we eventually take. As I said in other podcasts in the past, Brian, little did we know when everyone thought they were sick and tired of hearing the Brexit word, we'd be begging to hear it again in place of COVID-19. But, uh, you know, <laughs> such is the way of the world these days. But growth is projected to return to the market after the downturn experienced in 2020. Between 2021 and 2025, market value is forecast to rise by more than 11%. So far from doom and gloom. And now I want to move into another passive fire protection story. And that's the news that ASFP CEO Nar Rowan has announced plans to stand down after the ASFP's 2021 AGM. So the Association for Specialist Fire Protection, which is the ASFP, is now seeking a new chief executive following an announcement by the current CEO, Nar Rowan, of his intention to step down after the association's AGM meeting in 2021. Nar took on the role of CEO at the ASFP at the start of 2017, having been the association's technical officer since 2010. Having taken over just before the Grenfell Tower tragedy, Niall had led the ASFP through a period of huge change, both for the association itself and the fire and construction sectors in general. During his tenure, Niall has made a huge impact and has had a hugely influential role, providing input to the full range of government and industry committees tasked with transforming the building safety landscape and improving competency across the built environment, in addition to significantly raising the ASFP's profile as the go-to authority on the topic of passive fire protection. Before I throw over to you, Brian, you know, I know Niall very, very well. I've worked with him closely now for a number of years. It's been an absolute joy and pleasure to work with Niall. There's not anybody I respect more in the sector on this topic than him. He's a pleasure to deal with. He supported this magazine, ASFP members, get a copy of Fire Safety Matters. He's been a pivotal part on podcasts in the part and webinars. You know, the ASFP have a really important role. And every meeting the Fire Sector Federation that I sit in on, Niall's very active and really has been a true leader for the ASFP. There are other associations in the sector that didn't get out in front of Grenfell as well as ASFP did. Niall was everywhere. He, he, he gave thoughtful feedback feedback and he really stressed the importance of what the sector needs to do and he hasn't just rested on his laurel he's really driven that forward it has been an interesting period for anyone in the fire sector so he couldn't have took over the more tumultuous time he's done a fantastic job on a personal level i will be very very sad to see him step aside i know because he's already messaged me saying i'm not going anywhere i'll still be supporting the sap and everything that it does yes he will but I'd like to express my personal gratitude to Niall for the great work he's done and for being a, a true friend to this magazine. So, Niall, I know you're not gone yet and I know you'll still be around afterwards, but um, from us to you, thank you for all of your hard work. We really appreciate it. So I don't think there's anything else you want to add, Brian. Yes, there is, Mark. Uh, highlighting his intention to continue to support the association, as you mentioned, in other roles going forward, Niall Rowan has stated... It's been a great honour to lead the ASFP through a period of such turbulence and change, but I now feel the time is right for a new CEO to build on the achievements realised to date and complete the ASFP's transformation into a modern, professional and outward-reaching association that can represent the needs of its members and the industry long into the future. 
ASFP Chair Roger Williams has responded to Niall by stating the association wishes to thank Niall for his tireless work in promoting the ASFP and representing its views across the wider fire sector and indeed the built environment. He leaves the ASFP in a very strong position and ready to embark on an important period of change due to its substantial growth in recent years. Williams added to that by stating, we're seeking a new CEO to build on this legacy and develop the ASFP's future strategic direction. The new CEO will need to maximise the association's growth and revenue to ensure it continues to be the preeminent voice in the industry, improving standards across the passive fire protection industry and also the wider built environment. As you rightly said, Mark, Nile is a tremendous supporter of fire safety matters and always has been. And I'm very much looking forward to continuing to work with him on content and comment for the magazine in times ahead. Yeah, and, you know, now is the time where, you know, we look to the next segment of this podcast and... Warren Spencer, who is a recurring guest on the podcast, has prosecuted more cases under the fire safety order than anybody else. And Warren, bless him, is actually in the middle of a three-week trial, but actually took some time out to speak to us. And we actually had some really interesting questions related to COVID-19 in the fire safety order. So I sat down with Warren early this weekend, and here's what he had to say. Good morning, Warren. How are you? I'm fine, thank you, Mark. Are you good? Yeah, I'm good. I know you're about to be a busy man in a big trial for the next uh, few days and weeks, so thank you for taking this time to speak to us. Um, it's a, it seems like business is picking up for you in terms of having to be in court again. Um, business is very busy up until about the middle of January. I've got, I've got about three days spare. <laughs> well, we appreciate you taking the time to do this. We've had some questions in, and they're both linked to COVID-19, Warren, and the fire safety order. So the first one is a question that's come in and saying, has COVID-19 had any impact on the fire safety order and how it's enforced? Yes, definitely. Um, a number of fire safety officers are having to work remotely or are unable to go into premises for obvious reasons, social distancing. And so, yes, there's no doubt that I think from an enforcement point of view, fire services are not able to carry out as many inspections and are not able to deal with people as frequently, as regularly as they would like in respective premises. So from an enforcement point of view, I think it would be no surprise to anybody to see that um, inspections were down. So we have had other questions around COVID, but I'm just going to ask the one on this episode and we'll probably come back to it in future episodes, I'm sure. But the question that came in was, what if someone had received an enforcement notice but hasn't been able to take remedial action due to COVID-19? What's the situation there, Warren? What's the likelihood of how they're going to be treated by enforcement by the Fire and Rescue Service if they haven't been able to comply because of COVID? Well, I'm not a fire protection officer. But um, my experience is that fire protection officers, fire safety officers will be very cooperative if they see some evidence of compliance and if they believe that the responsible person or persons with control are trying their best to comply with the fire safety order. They will also, I think, understand that these are very difficult situations, difficult times to get contractors to premises, and to get people working in in an environment with other people. So there is a facility for 
responsible persons and persons with control to ask for an extension. And it should be done in writing. It should be within the time scale. So if you've been given 28 days, it should be well within that time. Or if you've been three months, then at sort of six week or two months period, you, you, you think you're not going to get it done, then notify and contact your fire safety officer and say, look, this is the situation. Uh, we've contacted X. They can't come in until Y. And you, I think you'll get a level of cooperation. What, what the fire safety teams that I work with are concerned with is evidence that, that someone's anxious to comply and certainly by saying well I've contacted people to try and do work etc and getting them in is evidence of that and if there's evidence to support it so an email or a letter from a contractor saying can't do this until this date then I, I think the fire service will cooperate with that what's important is that you don't do nothing so obviously, Warren, we mentioned on the last episode of the podcast that education and training is something you've also delivered from a legal perspective under the fire safety order and, and, and fire safety law in general. Now, we've obviously joined forces on the 3rd of December to do a legal conference, which is completely digital, where we hope as many of you can attend as possible. It's £99 plus VAT plus a booking fee to join us, and it's going to cover the new fire safety bill. I know you've been busy at work with the limited time you've got outside of work, already started work on your presentation. Can you give us a little sneak peek of the kind of things that we're going to be covering on the 3rd of December and why people should sign up and join us? Yes, I have done some preparation, but bearing in mind my busy, busy uh, few weeks ahead. And um, certainly in respect to the fire safety bill, um, I've looked at the, the, the proposed changes and, and the effects that both the government wish uh, to um, come into place as a result of the fire safety bill and also um, certain things that might happen as a result of the, the way in which the uh, the bill is drafted and, and things that certain certainly some people might not have thought about. So uh, I've been looking at that. Um, secondly, I've been in some preparation in, rela- in relation to the um, supported living presentation and into the different scenarios uh, and trying to identify which the guidance is, is a little bit difficult to, um, to, to get its head around, uh, who, who can be responsible when there are a number of, number of persons with responsibilities towards um, disabled persons or uh, persons who require care, care need and have care needs, etc. So um, I'm trying to clarify uh, with my presentation who is responsible and how they're responsible um, so that there's clarity and understanding between parties all involved with providing uh, care and assistance with supported living. Yeah, this is a session definitely not to be missed. As I said, it takes place on the 3rd of December 2020 at 10am. It's titled Legal Update, the new Fire Safety Bill. Warren, as you know, has prosecuted more cases than anybody else under the Fire Safety Order, but he's not alone in this one. Joseph Hart, who is a leaded fire safety barrister in the country, will also be delivering his thoughts on the new bill, and also they'll cover the building safety a bit as well. And James Ed, who works Warren at Blackhurst Bud, will also be part of this. So don't miss out on this session. It's the biggest legal change that we've seen in a long, long time, or I should say proposed legal change, because it's still having its reading through Parliament. So come and join us on the 3rd of December 2020 at 10am, legal update the new fire safety bill. And if you want to sign up, all you need to do is go to our website, which is fsmatters.com and click on the webinars tab and you can sign up there or you can of course search your social media and you'll find it nice and easy so on that front if you'd like to ask questions to warren on this podcast as we've seen today we've had a couple of good questions in from you please keep them coming all you need to do is go onto social media on twitter or linkedin and use the hashtag fsm podcast 
and I'll pose your questions to Warren. So, Warren, be remiss of me not to end the same way as we normally do. Thank you for your time today. But if people want to get in touch with you, what's the easiest way to do so? LinkedIn, Twitter. Um, I've got a, a website, which is uh, Fire Safety Law and Blackhurst Bud Solicitors. Well, thanks, Warren. Appreciate you joining us. And uh, we'll speak to you again in the next episode. Thank you, Mark. on this edition of the Fire Safety Matters podcast is Michaela Ford, the Head of Business Support at Safety Technology International. The Bromsgrove-based company manufactures products that prevent false fire alarms, deter theft and minimise acts of vandalism on vital life safety equipment. Michaela is in fact the longest serving employee at Safety Technology International, having spent two decades with the business. 17 of those years were focused on managing the marketing operation. During her interview with Mark, Michaela concentrates on Safety Technology International's product range and various applications in projects encompassing tool buildings, the education sector and also the heritage market. Good morning, Michaela. How are you? I'm very well today, Mark. How are you? Yeah, all good. All good. Uh, nice to see you. One of the rare times I get to see you. Well, we're not on an exhibition stand somewhere around the world. So, <laughs> or... Long time no see. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so this is all about the company you work for, STI. So can you tell us more about some products that STI has recently released? Yes, of course. So one of the products we've recently um, released is our Global Reset Core Point. So we already have an established EM54 line of core points for the European and UK market. And what we decided to do is be able to provide or offer a global solution for EM54 and UL core points. So this particular product is ideal for the US and the Middle Eastern market that would require a UL offering. And essentially what the product does is it has a resettable element. So if it was used as a fire alarm call point, you press it, a flag goes into view so you can easily identify the model that's been activated and use a key to reset. Uh, The beauty of that is there's no broken glass or replacement glass that has to be used in order to reset the core point and be able to put the system back in in line or online. So, um, this is a product that uh, we've launched. It's available now. It's in lots of different colours, depending on the application that you wish to fit it into. And one of the other things I just want to kind of bring to this particular product is what we call a universal fixing plate. So this will allow you to flush mount onto a US gang box or a European style electrical box. So it's ideal for flush mounting, as well as we supply back boxes as well for surface mount. So that's just one of the products that we've enhanced our resettable core point range. And then on our polycarbonate covers range is our 14,000 series. So we already sell um, our renowned polycarbonate covers, which retrofit over like a fire alarm core point and will protect uh, a core point from either vandalism or misuse. And this is a streamlined version that we've launched comes out with an audible alarm. So when you retrofit it over a protective product, you lift it, goes into the alarm and will draw immediate attention to the area. 
So these are just two products that we have launched recently, now available to enhance our already existing product range. So obviously I'm very familiar with your product range um, and have been for a number of years, but our readership at FSM and the people that listen to this podcast is pretty diverse. They range from end users all the way through to um, people working for major brands, SMEs, where they could be installers or consultants. So I want to take a little bit of time now to ask you some questions about STI. So for those not familiar with STI, can you tell us about some interesting client products and projects that you've worked on? Yeah, so one of the most notable one was the London Underground. So when we launched the resettable core point, they were looking for a product that they could fit uh, within some of the maintained uh, London Underground platforms. Back then it was run by Metronet and they got in touch. They had a time sensitive issue that obviously if there is a false alarm or a legitimate alarm, they have to be up and running within a certain time frame. So they took our product on board because of the fact it has a resettable element and again, very easy to identify with the flag when the product's being activated. So that was a really good project and it helped to launch and launch the resettable core point side of things. Um, other places you may see our products when you're out and about, so most notable, if you're in the US, Empire State Building, you may see our Stopper 2, which is the original cover that was manufactured back in the 1980s and still going strong today. So that will retrofit over a far alarm pull station and monitors and protects that from any accidental activation. I've seen the products in Tesco's, uh, Southridge's in Birmingham, um, the Cutty Sark, so there's, there's lots of different types of establishments uh, where you would see our products protecting essential foreign security equipment um, and notably through schools. So and, and those kind of establishment hospitals where they have a need to be able to protect core points um, and any other high risk areas where you'd need to be able to do that. Well, I think you've covered the core part of our readership who that would appeal to very nicely. Heritage <laughs> premises, manufacturing premises, retail, schools, you name it. Um, your product is here, there and everywhere, um, which is why I'm so familiar with it. But let's talk about what's next. What's next in your product pipeline, Michaela? Yeah, so we already have an established uh, what we call our stopper switch range, which is full of resettable uh, push buttons and key switches. And we are we have the no touch switch that is coming out. So um, we know there's obviously some on the market and this again just helps to um, build on our already successful stopper switch range. Uh, we also have a no-touch switch, which is out in the US. So we have a parent company based out in Waterford in Michigan. And they've already seen, obviously, an upsurge of these particular products being sold. Um, so that's in our pipeline at the moment, the, the introduction of the no-touch switch. Well, it feels like the right time to just talk about what everything has been happening in the world since we last saw each other. Obviously, COVID-19's hit and um, we would have seen each other a fair bit more at different events if it had not been the case. So how has COVID-19 affected you guys and has it made you do anything differently? 
Well, we, as an essential business, we have obviously stayed open during the pandemic. Um, we've been able to practice safe social distancing here and have strict COVID policies in place. Uh, what we have seen during our time um, is initially there was a 15% downturn in our business. Um, but now we're seeing and experiencing a comeback, which has reduced the overall effect um, to about 10%. So we are starting to see a gradual, um, you know, increase and, and hoping that that uh, remains, you know, the same throughout the rest of this year. Yeah, it's certainly been a difficult year for many and, and in the fire sector, she said, all you guys are, are counted as an essential business, uh, your key workers. And, you know, it, it is great to see that you've been resilient. And I think today's been really interesting for our listeners and for the readers of FSM because you've shown just how diverse the area that your product goes into, which is as diverse as our, our readership is. So with that in mind, Michaela, if people want to find out more information about STI and its products, how can they do so and how can they get in touch? Yeah, so definitely go to our website, www.sti-ema.com. Um, you'll be able to see our full range of products. There is a contact us, so you are able to contact many of the departments, including the sales team. I'd strongly recommend you sign up to the Stopper News. We have lots of product information that we send out once a month to our readership and, and looking at topical news and where our products stand within that. So I'd, I'd recommend that. We're also social as well. So you can see us on Twitter, Facebook and on LinkedIn. Um, just search for Safety Technology International and you'll find us. And for any product videos and reviews, go to our YouTube which is also linked to our website. Um, for any information on how you can purchase our products, I recommend contacting our sales department. So you can contact by email, sales at sti-ema.com, or you can contact us on the phone, which is 01527 520 So there's plenty of ways of being able to get in touch, and uh, we're happy to help. Well, thank you for joining us, Michaela. That that was great. And I'm glad all was well with you and hopefully we'll catch up soon. You're more than welcome and thank you very much. Stay safe. brings us to the end of this latest edition of the Fire Safety Matters podcast. Many thanks indeed to Richard Jenkins and John Davidson from the National Security Inspectorate, Warren Spencer of Blackhurst Bud Solicitors, and also Michaela Ford of Safety Technology International for their valued contributions. You can read more on the issues raised here and others by visiting the Fire Safety Matters website at www.fsmatters.com. We do hope you've enjoyed the content and found it useful. On that note, please do contact us if there are any particular themes or issues you would like us to explore on upcoming broadcasts. You can do so on Twitter by using the hashtag FSMpodcast. Do make sure you follow us on Twitter at FSMatters underscore MAG. As a reminder, the Fire Safety Matters podcast is live to view every fortnight on Wednesdays. Please do like and share the content and spread the word among your industry colleagues. You can listen to the Fire Safety Matters podcast for free on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube or Podbean. All you need to do is enter the term Fire Safety Matters into your chosen platform search box. The next episode of the podcast will be live to view on the morning of Wednesday the 25th of November. We'll see you then. Music